Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today we're talking about something that affects every single emergency dispatcher in the world, agency culture. Our guest is Dr. Renee Thornton, a veteran of the United States Navy and Army, a serial entrepreneur, and a published author. Dr. Thornton holds a doctorate of crisis intervention and a master's in clinical mental health counseling, an MBA in international business, as well as a dual psychology and communications degree. She's the founder of Pathfinder Resilience, where evidence-based, culturally competent curriculum and training validation are paramount. Considered a pioneer in the field of public safety wellness and enhancing workforce performance, we couldn't think of a better subject matter expert for this topic. Welcome, Renee. Wow, thank you. Make me sound so pompous. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't my intention at all. You you have so much experience and so many qualifications that I want to set us up for success here. <laughs> I don't mind the whole pompous thing. I just, I go by Renee, but I don't mind admitting that I am a little bougie. So, you know, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a little bougie. It's really nice to be here. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Ty Wooten, who is our director of government affairs, recommended you and just talking to you and learning about all the things that you've done and all the work that you're doing currently. I, I was just really excited to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Cool. Of course. My pleasure. So, Renee, could you please give a quick rundown of your career path? How did you get where you are today? Oh, my word. A quick rundown. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure that's possible. But I, okay, so I left small town America in search of something different, even though my parents always told me that, you know, every culture is the same, every experience is similar, grass is the same color no matter where you live. I had this sneaky suspicion that there was more to life than what I had grown accustomed to. So I joined the military and absolutely loved it. And I started traveling and I have always, always, always been fascinated by the interplay between a person's performance and how well they take care of themselves and their engagement level at work and the performance of an organization. There is a very delicate balance that takes place there. And I've always been fascinated by that. So I pursued a lot of different fields of study because I think it's essential to have a multidisciplinary approach to embracing culture, you know, and recognizing the influence of people, the people we choose on our culture, recognize the influence of leaders on our culture. So my educational journey has taken me down a number of different paths. And ultimately, I've landed on sort of the resolved reality that how healthy we are as individuals will ultimately determine how excellent we are as employees. And we can't ignore the self-care prioritization aspect and expect us to be really good at our work. But at the same time, we also can't 
exist in and lead toxic organizations and expect that those organizations are not going to negatively influence individual well-being. So this is a, a very important conversation that we need to be having more of because while people continue to push this idea that we have a recruitment and retention problem, what we really have is a culture problem. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree with you because it all feeds into each other, right? The individuals feed into the larger picture and the larger picture and how those individuals are supported impact the individuals. So it's you can't separate one from the other. We're not robots. We're humans. And a lot of people have been talking about a more holistic approach to wellness in general, but especially in the dispatch center. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a whole person approach, which Mm -hmm. is even more valuable than holistic. Holistically, of course, we can take aspects of good business and we can take aspects of healthy psychology and we can pull from what we know about the, the physicality, the biology of the work that we do. So that holistic approach to understanding the self, the whole person is one aspect of it. But I think it's super important for us to recognize that when we bring people into our 911 centers and we start to invest in that person's professional output, right, their professional expertise, what influences their ability to maintain professionalism under pressure has a lot to do with what happens when they're not at work. And so what our data sets are telling us very, very clearly is that there is a new expectation of employees that they be invested in as a whole person and not just developed by role. And this is a big thing that our leaders are unfortunately kind of either not aware of, you know, sometimes when you're too close to something, you can't see it very clearly. And what I see a lot inside of our public safety community is that we invest in people who very early on give us this desire to be a supervisor someday. Oh, okay, well, we're going to put you on that development track. But the people who come into our centers and maybe don't really know that they want to be leaders or are really unsure of what their skill set is, and they don't speak up and say, yes, someday I want to be a supervisor, we don't invest in them to the same degree. And now there is, they're very clear with their expectation that not only do I want to be developed professionally and offered opportunities to cross-train and to expand my knowledge base, but I also want someone to invest in me as a person. And that's where prioritizing self-care really comes into play, but also acknowledging that we are mothers, we are fathers, we are sisters and brothers and children and actively engaged community members. And we deserve to be invested in as that whole person. Yes, yes, absolutely. So before we get further into this discussion, because I could talk about this with you for hours, your company, your organization is called Pathfinder Resilience. And resilience can mean a lot of different things to different people. What definition do you find most useful in your work? You know, okay, so one of my biggest peccadillos is that I can't stand it when resilience is misapplied or it's not intentional, I don't think, but I, I think that this attitude of resilience being a natural phenomena where we just bounce back from difficulty, challenge, trauma, adversity, that really sells resilience short and it sets people up for failure and it sets them up on a trajectory of guilt and self-doubt because, hey, I'm not naturally bouncing back. Something must be wrong with me. 
that's not resilience. That's not what the research, the literature and the science and, and all the years that's been dedicated to understanding the resilience, you know, mindset, that feature, that's not what resilience actually is. So let's identify resilience for what it is. Resilience is the ability to look at something that you've gone through or are going through with an attitude of continuous self-improvement. The purpose behind resilience is because if you face a similar situation in the future that challenges you, you are prepared to navigate it successfully. So resilience takes self-awareness. The other thing about resilience that we are not talking about frequently enough is that it does not happen in a vacuum or in isolation. Resilience cannot occur as a singular person's effort. It requires community. And so if we're going to walk the path of resilience, like our company speaks to really frequently, then we have to engage each other in that process. And so that's why peer support is so valuable, because if you are surrounded by people who can encourage and support you as you're recovering from a difficult situation, then you become a more resilient person as long as you're looking at it through the lens of self-development too, self-awareness and preparation for the future. But you're supported by people who have been there and done that and know what it's like to be where you are. That's where resilience is expressed and discovered. And so I think we need to stop lying to ourselves and our people and putting down these ridiculous expectations that, oh, don't worry, you know, you're gonna go through this stuff, but if you're a resilient person, you'll bounce back. No, if you're a resilient person, we're going to surround you, you know, come alongside of you on this journey and we're gonna help support you as you figure out a way to get through what it is you've gone through and prepare yourself for future adversity. That is a very powerful and very useful definition because I think sometimes when people hear, oh, they're a resilient person or, oh, you're a resilient person, you'll get through it. It kind of, it takes the control out of their hands. It takes the reins out of their hands where they're like, okay, well, either I am or I'm not. So if I'm not facing this challenge I'm going through right now, you know, in the best possible way, if I'm not bouncing back as soon as fast as people want me to, I must not be resilient, right? But This approach, it's achievable. It's achievable for everyone. And you have to work at it, sure. And you have to surround yourself with people who will support you. But that's a lot less daunting. Absolutely. And it opens the notion of organizational resilience on a completely different level. And I think if you really think about it, you discover that these wellness resources that we have inside of our organizations, they fall short of where they need to hit because we're not viewing resilience through that lens. So we're, we're very reactive inside the workforce. And the other thing that the employees data has told us really revealed to us something new and it sort of put me on pause was employees today are sick and tired of the word wellness. Yes, when I, heard that, I, I am. Like, oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. You know what? I really feel that I know exactly where they're coming from because I am sick of hearing it. It's very generic. And this this is my opinion, you know, I've always felt like the word wellness is incredibly generic and it allows us to fall back on traditional resources without measuring their efficacy. Mm. So when I was diving into the 2023 employee trends data, what I really wanted to understand was, okay, well, what is it exactly they're sick of when it comes to wellness? Is it just the word, the terminology, what? And as it turns out, it's a couple of things. They're sick of reactionary wellness programs being pushed as the primary resource. So 
The problem with that is we're waiting until a person is diagnosable before we apply any sort of tool to help that person out. So the reactionary piece, it's exhausting because we know it's not, we know there are better resources out there, but we keep falling back on what we've always done and people are tired of that. The second thing that they're actually asking for, which I was really excited about, is accountability to a self-care regimen. It's different when you place the person in control of their own physical, emotional, cognitive, psychological destinies and teach them what that looks like. Teach them how to live within their means financially and steward what they have access to financially. It's different when you give them that education and then you say, okay, so we're going to help you maintain it. We're going to measure it regularly. And we're going to incorporate this self-care attitude into the fabric of our culture because we know that the more you invest in your self-care, the less adversity is going to harm you when it comes. We can't deny that it's coming. It's part and parcel of the job, but we're going to prepare you for it. And that's what they're demanding. It's not so much they don't like wellness, but they actually want individualized self-care that is a fabric of the culture that they fit inside of. Yes, exactly, exactly. I loved what you said about organizational accountability because it's one thing for admin or, you know, the faceless suits to be like, oh, well, we just need to hire people who are more resilient and give them the resources for wellness. But when we go back and we look at a useful and actionable definition of both wellness and resilience, you have to act. You can't just sit back passively. And you need to realize that mental health hygiene is an ongoing thing. It's not just, you know, a metaphorical root canal. It's not just when someone is diagnosed with PTSD. More and more studies are showing that you can set dispatchers up for success. You can teach them ways so they don't get to that point where they're completely burnt out and overwhelmed. It's not insurmountable, right? And like breaking it down into these pieces make it seem a whole lot less scary. I would take it one step further and I would say that we have a responsibility to provide this I wouldn't say that this is an optional resource. I don't treat it as such. And this is why when we screen people for the 911 dispatch community, we're looking for very specific psychological skills. Not because we know that if you have them, you won't be affected by the traumas of the job, but because we know that if you have them, you'll still be able to be effective in that moment and then you'll be able to kind of push off the requirement for you to recover from what's happening to other people, right? So we just know that with these psychological skills coming into the career, you have a higher likelihood of self-control in crisis moments when other people need you, right? What we aren't telling people is A, what these psychological skills are, and B, how they need to really invest in maintaining them because we know they're perishable. So we as leaders inside of the public safety 911 dispatch community, we have a responsibility to the people we hire to tell them what it is that uniquely qualifies them psychologically for this position. And then to honestly and openly acknowledge the fact that those psychological skills are perishable. And then we have a responsibility 
to give them the tools and resources they need from day one to maintain as much of that psychological strength as they came into the career with. Right now, we're basically treating people like they're not that important, like they're replaceable. And I think the staffing crisis has caused us to step up and say, well, wait a minute, maybe they aren't so replaceable after all. And now we need to go back and do some work investing in our people. So if we do that right, we're building healthy individuals, healthy organizations and families that are also actively engaged in that process so that there is a support system all the way around for the whole life. Yes, exactly. It's one thing to say, oh, well, we can just hire other people, right? These people washed out. They weren't resilient, right? Blah, 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 for whatever reason. But you're right with the staffing crisis, people and organizations, they can't do that anymore just because they need to work with what is available. And since you brought it up recently, the National Association of State 911 Administrators and the IED surveyed dispatchers to find out what some of the most pressing staffing issues are in this field right now. And they found out that there's a 25% average vacancy rate in 911 centers across America. We surveyed over 750 centers, the center with the highest vacancy rate had 85% vacancy. This is a hard industry and people are leaving due to the stress of the job or for better work hours, better opportunities or better pay. You also mentioned the 2023 staffing survey. That's the Qualtrics one, right? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. They conducted a survey of 30,000 people to ask what they want from employment and wellness definitely came up clearly from what you said. How have employee attitudes shifted? We've talked a lot about organizations and companies, but how have individual attitudes shifted? Oh, that's such a great question. What do people need yeah. to be recruited and retained? Well, you know, it kind of sort of boils down to fit. They want to fit inside of this culture because people recognize that they're going to spend 40% of their life at work. And so if they're going to invest 40% of their life at work, then they want that investment to be in a place where they actually look forward to being right. Right now, there are a lot of people who are saying, I dread going to work, even though I am passionate about the work that I do. I don't care for the environment. There's been some, you know, organizational or leadership betrayal or I'm just burnout. I'm exhausted. And so there is just this attitude right now of just, I would say, I call it exhaustion in your soul. Our employees are exhausted in their souls and they're starting to really push back. I will say a couple of things that have come out of um, COVID. One of them is employees are now putting forth boundaries a little more readily saying, okay, look, I am not comfortable being expected to work overtime, being mandated to work overtime because you're disrespecting me as a family member to my loved ones by ordering me to be somewhere. Now that does not necessarily mean that they don't, they're not willing to do it because they absolutely are willing to do it, but they don't wanna be told to do it. They wanna be asked to do it and they need to be approached with that level of respect. Um, You know, and it's funny, I do, I want to point this out because it's really important that people understand that leaders are 
they were raised in the same kind of environment that has existed for a really long time. And I talk to leaders inside of 911 all the time, and they all say the same thing. I want a healthy organizational culture. I want to take care of my people. I want them to be thriving and happy and healthy individuals because I genuinely care about them. I have yet to meet one who has not expressed that exact thing to me. And then ultimately what it boils down to is, you know, they're perpetuating the way that they were brought up in this culture of 911 dispatch. So they're not at fault, okay? And we have to extend them some grace while they learn new ways of articulating their desires to this new younger workforce. They just don't traditionally know how to do it. And so we do have a bit of a generational gap and a communications gap. But another thing that's really interesting that came out that this should empower every leader listening right now, everyone who's recruiting, I hope that you're paying attention because this right here is essential to the future of your organization. Young people for the very first time in, uh, I'm gonna say at least 20 years, are now very clearly saying their number one priority is to work for an organization for the long term where there is job security and longevity as a fundamental part of the employment contract. The reason for that has to do with the economy and how frightened we have become by this economic downturn. But a part of that is they want their leaders to enthusiastically reassure them of the health of the organization for a long time. Like we want you to come work for us because we're super excited about what we're doing. We're achieving big things together. You know, people want to work for successful organizations. And even when you're floundering and you're not really sure as a leader, like how in the world are we going to get through this? Fake it till you make it, baby, because you have to have that messaging come out that you're excited. And then they are excited because you're excited. Enthusiasm is the most contagious human emotion. So if you can infuse enthusiasm into your recruitment verbiage and your branding messaging, you're already doing better than 90% of other recruitment messaging. Right. And this job in particular seems to attract people who are enthusiastic and are passionate about serving their communities, right? So not only do they get to be a part of this organization that is excellent and doing amazing things, those things also impact where they live, where their families live, where their friends live. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing that we have to remember is that we're recruiting people that share our values, okay? And that is a fundamental fit factor, okay? So there was a fundamental fit factor for 911 dispatch. It is their value system. And because you share values, you already have that connectivity piece there. The challenge becomes making sure that you are consistently honoring those values once they are employed by you and, and maintaining awareness of value shifts and adjustments as time progresses. And so, you know, having that conversation about the organization's values and how they either align with or don't align with the individual value systems is something we need to be having pretty regularly because values, you know, priorities of values will shift with changes that take place organizationally and societally. So we have to keep that conversation going. And the reason that we have so many people right now who are considering leaving is because they feel like their values are no longer prioritized by the organization. And you can't stay happy in a role when you feel like you're coming to work to serve a master that doesn't share your value system, not in 911. 
You can do that in, in the private sector until the cows come home, but you cannot do that in public safety because the values are what we seek. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The people I talk to, the dispatchers, the supervisors, the administrators, they're not in it for the paycheck. I have a lot of friends in the private sector and they're like, yeah, I go to work and I come home and that's it. Right. But like the people in 911 believe in what they're doing. And so if they're being taken for granted, if they're not being supported, if they feel like they are not able to help the community to the best of their ability, they're going to leave and they are leaving, frankly. They are. And here, you know, here's another piece of it. There are going to be people who are listening to this going, well, sounds to me like you want us to develop a bunch of entitled employees who are telling us how to be, you know, we want you to do this for us. We want you to do that. You know what? That and that expectation of a Google Facebook culture with the resting pads and cappuccino machines, that is out the window. They don't want that anymore. So they're not asking you to baby them or to treat them as they are entitled. What they are saying is, these are our boundaries. These are the things that really matter to us. And frankly, they should matter to you too, because we share a value system. But in exchange for, I mean, this is where that psychological contract between employer and employee steps in. In exchange for my loyalty, my dedication, my work ethic, all of these things, my pursuit of excellence in this role, I am obligated to stay if you invest in me. And that obligation exists, again, in public safety, unlike in any other professional realm in the world. So you can't expect, like in the private sector, to tap into their value system and say, okay, well, I'm going to invest in you, and I know that because I do, you're, you're going to feel obligated to stay in this organization. It doesn't work like that outside of public safety as frequently as it does in here. Because driven people and because we share those values and expect our organization to as well. If you invest in us, we feel a sense of obligation to be loyal to you and our intent to stay expands with every piece of investment that you make in us. So when people say, well, how do we retain talent? You invest in them, you invest in their whole life. You give them a voice and remind them that they are important, explain to them why they're unique and tap into their obligation, that sense of service and obligation that drives us all like we've been talking about this whole episode, it's constant contact in between the organization and the individual. And it's a balance and it's a give and take. And unfortunately, there's no panacea, right? There's no penicillin shot that you can just be like, boom, perfect dispatcher, boom, perfect administration. There has to be grace given on both sides. There has to be coming with the intention of I'm doing my part. Will you please do yours? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it's just give and take. It really is. But unfortunately, I think that part of the problem is the lack of communication. And, you know, some of that is a generational reality. I have a 20 year old and my 20 year old is a content creator on YouTube. I am like, I'm one of those <laughs> moms. You're a momager. Right? <laughs> um, I'm so proud of him. And, and let me tell you the journey that we went from him saying to me, Hey mom, I want to be a gamer to me being his biggest fan was a lengthy trial and error, lots of research psychology <laughs> journey. But the thing that I know about the generation of youth who grew up with devices in their hands from an early age is that their communication styles are not the same as those who are generally leading an organization. And overcoming that communication challenge is half the battle. But once you do, and you start 
getting people accustomed and comfortable with the give and take and the back and forth, then you have just a robust, truly engaged workforce. So I think that you have to keep that in mind. And I, I think there's another really important piece that came out of the 2023 employee trends research that would really help, I think, your, your leaders who are facing that recruitment and retention challenge. And so to simplify it, I just kind of say this. We recruit for team, but we retain for family. And what I mean by that and why that's so important is this. The youngest generations grew up in broken homes. And so their perspective of family is not our perspective of family. So if you're using verbiage in your recruitment, branding and marketing campaign that speaks to, hey, come join our family, you're going to miss out on really awesome applicants because to them, family brings up negative connotation. They've learned it. That's not what they're interested in. So if you recruit them for team, you're actually speaking to their desire to belong. Everybody needs to belong. Everybody wants to belong somewhere. So everyone recognizes that, you know, if you're a part of a team, you've been chosen because you belong. That speaks to the weakness. It's, it's just all these things about personal individual fit. What happens once a person becomes a member of our staff is that now as leaders and as peers, we have a responsibility to re-educate them about what family actually is. Now that is a reflection of your culture. The kind of culture you have basically defines the kind of family that you are creating. So when we're talking about retention, you're retaining your family members. You are retaining the people who have been there. They have given that of themselves, of their own family, to this career, to this organization. And you want to honor that because they are a member of your family. And so you retain your family members. So it's a really interesting process in a thriving and a healthy culture to recruit someone into a team. And then as they settle into their uniqueness, they start to relearn what family is. And then they choose to stay because you don't want to leave a really healthy, thriving family. So we retain for family, we recruit for team. That's so fascinating. And you're right. Who who would want to leave a healthy, thriving family, right? Like people stick around for family all the time, but if it's healthy and if they feel like they have a choice, right? And if they feel supported, why would you leave that? Because that, that's irreplaceable, essentially. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little shift here, Renee. In your studies in Pathfinder Resilience, you talk about the eight dimensions of wellness, what are they, number one? And then what are some of the markers or symptoms that people can look for to see how they're doing in an individual area? So the eight dimensions of self-care are a part of a, a training program called Navigating Adversity. And we call it tactical self-care now for a reason. When we first started doing the work, there wasn't anything tactical about it. It was theoretical. But we've spent so many years researching it and trying to understand the influence of investing in these dimensions on the primary markers of mental distress in public safety. And so what we discovered is that for every dimension of well-being, there is an influence factor on a mark stress and a very specific one you pair up mental distress with a positive dimension of self-care so i'll give you like a breakdown so you can kind of understand what i'm saying 
So if you invest in yourself and your physical health, we find that people who have high levels of, we call it physical capital because you're investing in yourself and you're building capital up, right? So if you have high level of physical capital, those people have lower markers of occupational stress. If you have high levels of cognitive capital, which has to do with decision-making and learned resilience, then that works as a, a sort of a protector against post-traumatic stress symptoms. Emotional capital is paired with anxiety. So the higher levels of emotional capital that you exhibit, the lower your levels of anxiety or the less anxiety will have an impact over your well-being. The higher your spiritual capital, the lower compassion fatigue, which is burnout and secondary traumatic stress. The higher your financial capital, the less likely you are to engage in addictive and risk-taking behaviors. The higher your social capital, the more successful your relationships. So the fewer broken relationships, whether it be you know, at home or like with your extended family. The higher your level of professional capital, the lower your organizational stress. And the higher your psychological capital, the lower your depression. So what we have, we've just discovered that over time, you know, with all the research that we do, that if you invest in very specific dimensions, then that investment inoculates you against these really negative markers of mental distress. And how awesome is that? I mean, it's intervention at its best, but it's also proactive self-care preparing people for the reality of adversity because we cannot escape it in this career. This is part and parcel of what we signed up for. So we have a responsibility as leaders to be very tactical and to provide these resources to our people so that they can practice self-care with regularity. And that way, when this stuff happens, they aren't as impacted by it negatively as somebody who was basically walking through life depleted of all resources. Right. Running on empty. And that is what burnout is, essentially, is it not? And I love these eight markers because they have a symptom and they have a solution. Right. So it's really not easy, but it's it is. It is easy to check in and be like, OK, well, what symptoms I am I exhibiting? How am I feeling socially? How am I feeling spiritually? And be able to say, oh, well, I'm OK here. I'm OK here. Professionally, though, I'm having some problems. So how can I manage that. And again, it breaks down well-being into something that is digestible, something that is easier to tackle, which is the tactical part, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it goes right back to that, giving the power to the individual. You know, there's nothing that says that you're not going to face a serious adversity at some point in your life, because you know what, it just it happens. And there's nothing that says that that adversity isn't going to leave a, leave a mark. They always do. But we do have the power. If we can learn more about ourselves and learn what we need to do to prepare ourselves ahead of time or recover from the past, which that's another really awesome piece of the research that we've done is we've discovered that even people who like have never learned self-care or maybe they're in the midst of a mental diagnosis or struggling with post-traumatic stress. Like I have a trainee who came from the fire service who was in therapy for two years for post-traumatic stress. And he said, I went through navigating adversity. And then I went back to my therapist and I explained to her the things that, you know, the activities, the things that we were engaged in. And he said, I've actually never felt more in control of my own outcomes than I do now. And I feel like having this individual learning path has given me a sense of power 
over my own life. Now, if this, then that, and I already know what that looks like. So if this is happening in my life, then I can do that to affect change for myself. I don't necessarily have to go outside of me and my family to be as healthy as I can be. That's a really powerful statement. That is, that's such a powerful statement. And it's life-changing, honestly, when you realize that you aren't at the whims of the world when you don't have to be not a victim, but a pawn or someone who is enacted upon by, you know, the world in general, right? In every aspect, it gives you security. And like we talked about, that's what people want. They want security emotionally, occupationally, etc. Yes, absolutely. I think there's nothing more empowering than knowing what we're capable of, understanding the risks, fully understanding the risks, and knowing that there are things that we can do to mitigate those risks. That's incredibly powerful. Not to mention as an organization, as a city, I mean, we, we do have a responsibility to provide the best possible resources to our people because you know we have to mitigate our own risk. So I think for a leader to ignore self-care as a fundamental component of a healthy culture, I think that that's uh, I think that's a dangerous road to walk. And I think that at some point, I don't know, I think the consequences might out- outweigh that risk. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. I don't want to be there when that day happens. Like, yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah. Especially when it's preventable. Right. Yeah. So for managers or supervisors or, you know, center admin, what are, you know, a couple of things that they can do today or, you know, in the next while to make their agency culture more positive? You know, I think the, the values conversation is really powerful as it opens a dialogue with people and it gives them a voice. And, and that is one of the most powerful things that you can do to course correct a negative culture. And it, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily, you don't have to look at your culture and go, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by toxicity. It doesn't have to be that. It can be a quasi healthy, it can be a really healthy culture. I've, I've spoken with leaders who feel like they are in a really healthy culture and that their leadership team has done a lot of work to cultivate really positive behaviors inside of the workforce. But you know, even they, aren't having that values conversation. And I think that's, that opens the door up to announcing your intent to do better and engaging your employees into being a part of the solution instead of walking around feeling like they are just a part of the problem. Right now, that's what a lot of people are telling us. You know, I just feel like I go to work and all I do is get yelled at. Like there's nothing that I do that's good enough. And I, I don't like feeling like I'm just a part of the problem. So we have to give them a format to be a part of the conversation leading towards being a part of the solution, right? And and really aligning your values and having a conversation about individual and organizational values, boy, it opens the door up to a lot of healing and a lot of acknowledgement of mistakes made in the past, whether they were yours or a leader who's gone. Like people just want to, they want to be a part of the solution. So that allows them to, I think that's a, a really important step. And I think the second thing is to really be serious about your wellness programs, <laughs> like ask yourself the question, is this a reactive wellness program or is this a proactive wellness program? And if it's not proactive, the best thing you can do for your people is to fix that problem. Because if you ingrain into the culture, the expectation that individuals will take care of themselves, and then you tie organizational practices to that expectation, you're building accountability to self-care while 
communicating the message of value to the individual. And that changes everything inside of an organization. I have watched stigma be the biggest reason that an organization won't talk about mental health. And then they went through navigating adversity and it created a new common language where the stigma was gone because they weren't talking about mental health anymore. They were talking about investing in capital and what a positive change that made inside the day-to-day of the workforce. It was huge. So they had a new common language. They were all excited about building these positive resources inside themselves and each other and encouraging each other along the journey. And that stigma was gone. I mean, there's just, it's a remarkable impact. It's just, if it's done right, it's got a remarkable impact. Yes, absolutely. And that is what you want to see. You want to see that impact. You want to see those lives changed. This whole episode, we've been talking about how culture is impacted by everyone. So what are three action items for line dispatchers or individuals who aren't necessarily in a leadership role? Oh, I want them to ask themselves first, what's inside of your control and what's beyond it? Focus on what's inside of it. Because a lot of times we we mentally mess our own selves up because we're so focused on the things that other people are doing. And we can't change that. We can't change them. So whenever you face a challenge, first question out of your mind needs to be, what can I control and what can't I? And then focus in on what you can. I think the second thing that I would, I think that, um, you know, line officers need to consider is asking for self-care. <laughs> like say it out loud. Don't be afraid to go to your leadership and say, look, I, I love the idea of a self-care regimen being integrated into our workforce. How do we do that? What do you need from us to make that a reality? What kind of you know resources, like how can I help make this a reality for us? Because there are ways that we can affect change for the rest of the organization, but we can't do it if we're not going to speak up about it, right? And then I think the third thing is the extension of grace to self and others. Mm. That's a really, really huge factor of a healthy, thriving culture. Instead of laying down judgment and expectations of other people, try to understand their perspective and maybe even take it a step further and accept that some decisions are not necessarily within their control. And so you may not like it, or you might just view that leader as somebody who, who doesn't care I would beg to differ. I think your leaders do care. And I think that they're under a great deal of pressure, just like you're under a great deal of pressure. And so we have to extend them some grace as they figure out how to navigate this culture shift that's happening because it's happening one way or another, it's coming. So you're either on the leading edge of it or you're going to get slapped around by it as it leaves you. So that's your choice. But as the leaders are learning how to affect positive change, there are going to be some stumbles and they deserve some grace along the way. And for the individual, I think it's so important to remind yourself that you're not Superman, that you most definitely deserve to be prioritized. And if you don't start prioritizing yourself and giving yourself a little bit of grace to not be perfect all the time, you're going to drive yourself deeper into that burnout place in your mind. And that's not good for anybody, you in particular. So go easier on yourselves, like like accept the fact that you're unique and awesome. And remind yourself of that pretty regularly. If you're not hearing it from someone else, hear it from yourself. Yeah. Be your first ally and your first advocate. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Oh, Renee, it has been a delight chatting with you today. (laughs) We're going to wrap it up here. 
I know that you gave some some advice, some action items just now, but is there just one thing that you want people to take away from this episode? I think it's the decision that they have to make about their culture. Like I said, the culture shift is here. You know, for the last 10 years, the word du jour inside of our organizations has been wellness, you know, and to a certain degree resilience, but I'm going to, I'm not going to dive into that rabbit hole for the moment, but wellness really has been the thing. And so people have kind of doubled down on the whole, well, we provide wellness resources. Okay, fine. Those are the last 10 years resources, right? The next 10 to 15 years is going to be culture. Mm. That's it. Culture is king. So the question that you've got to ask yourself is this, am I going to be on the leading edge of the culture change or am I going to let it happen and be caught unawares with no staff, nobody to work? Like literally those are the problems. That's what happens in a toxic workforce. So, you know, you're basically killing yourself, you're killing your people and you're not serving your community to ignore that culture needs to be addressed. And waiting is not the solution either. So <laughs> how are you affecting positive culture change given the opportunity that you currently have to capitalize on what we're learning about the change in workforce expectations? Yes, culture is. Culture is king and you don't have to tackle it all at once. It looks daunting, but you, you really can do it piece by piece, step by step. And that's yes. what I, that's what I, I love about that. your message. Yeah. Is I, that it's one doable. <laughs> yes. One bite at a time. Yep. We will have relevant links in the show notes, including the link to the IED and NASNA staffing survey results, to the Qualtrics staffing survey results, to Pathfinder Resilience website, to the Navigating Adversity course, if you'd like to learn more about that or go through it yourself or put your center through it. There are so many resources and uh, Renee's very helpful and she's very responsive to emails. So definitely get in on that. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, hey, we would like Dispatch in Depth to cover this topic or talk to this subject matter expert shoot us an email at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And Renee, thank you so much for coming today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dispatch In Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 